having ease, birth weight, carcass traits? Which EPDs do you lean towards when selecting bulls? In this episode of the Cattleman U podcast, we're talking about how to find Mr. Right. That's right, we're talking bull selection. Brady Blackett from Intermountain Genetic Alliance in Utah joins us on this episode to discuss how he selects bulls and some trends in the industry that we should be looking out for. We are excited to have Brady on the podcast, and this is the second time you guys heard his sale information podcast earlier in the season, but Brady is a producer I really look up to and enjoy working with because I think he thinks outside the box, and that's really something I do and I love to do, so we're so excited to have a conversation with Brady today. Thank you, Caroline. I appreciate you inviting me to be on your on this episode and to have a chance to talk a little bit about uh, the cattle industry and particularly uh, bull sales. Absolutely. Why don't you tell us a little bit about your background, how you got started raising cows and selling bulls? Sure. So I'm a third generation cattle producer here in the state of Utah. Uh, We're located in uh, South Central Utah, Juab County. I live in a small town called uh, Mona, Utah and uh, run a herd of purebred Angus and some commercial uh, Angus cows with my father here. I grew up, you know, from the time, as long as I can remember, I've always had an interest in and a passion for the cattle industry. In fact, my grandpa Blackett gifted me my first heifer when I think I was just two years old. I probably couldn't even speak or, or understand what was going on, but he gave me my first heifer then. And from there, I grew my herd. And then around the time that I turned, gosh, I think it was, I was 16, maybe no older than 17. I told my dad, give me the keys of the truck. I'm empty in my bank account. And I am going to invest all of my money into some purebred Angus cows. If I'm only going to have a limited number of cattle on the place. They're going to be some cattle that I can try and make a little bit more money off of. So I went to a production cell and took a good friend of mine with me that was familiar with Angus cows. And he helped me select uh, a few head of bred cows in that cell. And that's what got me started um, in the purebred seed stock industry. And from there, it's just continued to evolve we are now in our 17th year at the Intermountain Genetic Alliance. Uh, we offer anywhere from 60 to 70 head of bulls each year in our annual production cell that's held on the first Saturday of March each year. So that's a little bit about me and, and my background in the cattle industry. I love it. I want to see every producer, both big and small, be successful. Uh, I believe there's a lot of great things that uh, come from being involved in the industry. Yeah, I love that you got a heifer at so young, because I think that is something that happens in a lot of ranching families. But oftentimes when people ask me how I got into the industry, I tell them it's genetics. I was like, I have no choice. It's running through my blood. And when kids are raised in the right atmosphere, like you were, I think that just happens. Yep. I totally agree. I remember my grandpa picking me up from school as far back as I can remember. And every day I was his chore boy. We went down and took care of whether it was he was feeding calves. My grandpa, when I was younger, he used to background all of our calves. So it was, you know, going and feeding calves or during calving season, going and taking care of new babies and So I credit a lot of my passion for the industry to him because of the amount of time that I spent as a young boy just being completely immersed in doing those things. So I agree with you. It's genetics. (laughs) I'm not sure if you know this story about how I got started in the industry, but I'll tell it quick because you have kids that are teenagers or almost teenagers. And so you'll enjoy this story. I was 13 and I applied for a Nile Mare heifer and that's the year I ended up winning so I applied at 12 and 13 and I didn't get it at 12 but both times I forged my dad's signature on the application so when they sent me the paperwork saying 
that I want a purebred heifer from Kern Creek Angus. And I was so ecstatic. My dad had no idea that I had even applied, <laughs> even though I said, you signed off on it. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. That sounds about like me, basically. On my dad, when I was 16, like, you're giving me the keys to the truck and trailer because I am, I'm selling my commercial cows. I'm done with them. I'm buying purebred cows. And I think he could sense my enthusiasm and my excitement. So uh, for whatever reason, he handed me the keys to the truck and the trailer and uh, trusted that I wouldn't, you know, roll that thing or wreck it on my way. And I had to drive up through the city. And I think that was the first time I'd ever driven through the, the metro area of Salt Lake City and towing a 20 foot stock trailer. So I still look back and I'm like, wow, I can't believe he let me do that. Good thing we have dads who trusted us. Yeah, exactly. Let's talk a little bit about bull selection. Not only the bulls that you're picking for your cows, but also kind of the conversations you're having with your customers about bull selection. You know, what are the traits? What are the things? What are the patterns you're looking for in bulls these days? Okay. So personally, not speaking for any other of the uh, members of our cell, because there are a few of us and we all have different ideas and philosophies when it comes to cattle. But for me personally, I'm looking, you know, I, I appeal still sells. If I can't look at it, I'm not even going to look any further into its pedigree or its EPDs or the genomics or, or anything like that. So the first thing that catches my eye is phenotype. I want to be able to look at that bull and say, gosh, he's sure is fun to look at. I'd love to put him on a, a set of cows and see what he does. So me personally, I'm looking for a length. Um, I believe that that's a trait, a maternal trait that is oftentimes overlooked. But if you really take some time and think about it, there's a lot of pounds that can be added to a calf crop in length. And then if you follow it down the, the supply chain, down to the, uh, the feeder sector of the cattle industry, and you start looking at different beef cuts, you can get a lot of beef out of cattle that are long. So I, I do love lengthening cattle. Feet and legs are super important to me because of where we run our cattle. Uh, we run in a, a high desert uh, environment here in Utah. Uh, so the cattle travel miles, dusty, dusty trails every day to and from feed and water. So cattle that can get out and work are crucial to me. And breeding bulls that I know are going to get out and work in the big open breeding pastures is crucial to me. So I like to look at bulls as athletes, right? I want a bull that's athletic. I want a bull that's going to get after it when I turn him out. So that's important to me. Depth and length of rib, I'll take that in, into consideration uh, when looking at uh, a set of bulls or in picking a bull. And then obviously good scrotal. If a bull doesn't have a good scrotal measurement, chances are he's not going to produce very many calves no matter how hard he tries. So those are some of the primary traits that I look for in uh, selecting a bull and as oftentimes as I can, I want to see the mama cow. I want to see the cow that that bull came from. I want to see the cow that raised that calf, if it's available. That leads me down two different paths. The first one's more simpler than the second one that we're going to dive into. But I don't think that you can see that athleticism and really those feet and legs if all you do is watch them come in the sailing. I just don't think there's enough for them to catch their stride, get out and move well. And so I'm a huge, huge believer in looking at those bulls earlier, um, ahead of time, before the sale, really studying that video. And if you can, going out and seeing the herd that they came from. Yep. I totally agree with that. And it's funny you mentioned that. We, my, uh, my father last year, he wanted to put a Hereford bull on some commercial Angus cows. And so I found a cell that had a good selection of Hereford bulls that I was interested in. And the, uh, the feeder that was feeding him, he, he would tease cause I showed up at different points during the day for probably two or three weeks. 
and uh, wandered through the pens, moved the bulls around, uh, walked them out. And uh, he finally snagged me one day and he's like, how long is it going to take you to pick one of these things? And I said, well, I'm narrowing my list down, but I'm, I'm wanting to see how these boys move out. And that's important to me because where he's going to get put isn't in a feedlot environment where it's a confined space and uh, he, it doesn't take him very far to track down the, the cows that are in heat. He's going to be out on thousands and thousands of acres that's hills and rocks and sagebrush. And when those cows are in heat, I've got to trust that he's got enough athleticism to get out and get after it uh, and find those cows and, and get them covered. So that's important to me. And it's something that we breed for. Yeah, and I think it's important. You live that importance because you offer that to your customers. Yep. You offer those chances for them to come and look at those bulls in kind of the situation they're in now and say, I want you to see, not just on sale day, you know, that two minutes is not enough. Yep. Come look and study these bulls ahead of time. Yep, yep, it is. And that's uh, one thing we've offered. Uh, we've always offered people to come and see the bulls prior to the sale, but this year we've kind of formalized that and we're doing two previews ahead of our sale this year. Uh, where people can come and get in the uh, the pens with them. They'll be in, you know, their environment where they've been on feed since October. And uh, you can come and move them around, walk them around, see how they move out and compare them to all of their, you know, herd mates there at the sale. So I think it's crucial that people do that. And I would encourage people to go and view the bulls as often as they can prior to the sale. Absolutely. I would agree. If you can get out and see them, uh, you can see the cow herd that they came from. Any conversation and viewing that happens before a sale, I think, is very, very crucial. Definitely so. Let's talk a little bit about scrotal size. So we happened to be semen testing some bulls, and I was talking to my vet, and we had this conversation about how everything is a teeter-totter, right? And the goal is to kind of hang out in the middle. But he said one thing he's noticing is some of these bulls that were getting too large on the scrotal size, it's reflecting in their calves on the female side in udder. And so he's seen that udder size is increasing as we're kind of chasing this larger scrotal size. So talk to me a little bit about kind of the balance of EPDs and that chase that seems to be happening in the industry right now in the purebred division mm-hmm. and how how we study that. I mean, we're going to dive into, you know, of course, cavities, but it's the same thing, right? We just, we have this teeter-totter of the numbers versus what's happening in real life. And so let's have a conversation about that. All right. So that's, that's a really interesting observation that, yeah, that vet made. I want to uh, look into that myself a little bit more and kind of study that up. But to answer your question, to me, it's important to be all things in moderation, right? I try not to select for one specific trait and go completely all in on that one primary specific trait. I try to be moderate in all things. So the scrotal size, you know, for example, I'm not looking to breed bowls that are going as yearlings are going to have, you know, 36, 38 centimeter scrotal circumferences. But if we can get them consistently right there in the 30, 32, 34 range, then that gives me confidence that those bulls are going to be consistent producers and that they're going to, when they, when they mount a cow, they're going to be able to, to settle a cow as well. But to me, it all goes back regardless of what you're looking for, all things in moderation. And I think sometimes in the seed stock world, we are our own worst enemies. It's a competitive industry in the seed stock world. We're all trying to get ahead of one another and and be the cell that people turn to. And I think oftentimes that comes back to hurt us because we get so focused on one particular thing weaning weights or calving ease or too much extreme carcass merit and doing so gets us nowhere and before long we realize we have a set of cows that that we're not even happy with or proud of 
I think in the industry, we have certainly been chasing some numbers for a long time. And we've seen that effect of what that's doing in the industry. But it's human nature, right? To think that if the max number is 100, we better be 99 or 100. And I don't think that's the solution. I mean, we got to raise cows, both that have it phenotype and these EPDs that match. And it's this perfect recipe. And every bull is going to be a little different about how that recipe, but I think the chasing kind of that big number is a switch that the industry is going to have to do. Oh, I totally agree with you. And you know, I believe EPDs um, are a good selection tool, but it's just one of the tools in a toolbox. If you get so focused on numbers and EPDs uh, without taking into consideration, well, how did this bull actually perform individually when compared to the other bulls that he was developed with? Environmentally speaking, how was this bull raised from birth to weaning? What were the conditions like? There's oftentimes I've, you know, flipped through a catalog and and I've seen bulls that are in the top 10% across the board um, in their respective breeds from an EPD perspective. And then I'll either request photos or videos or go look at the bull in person and I wouldn't touch him. But based on the numbers, this dude's the real deal. So there's got to be balance. And I do think it's dangerous just to chase numbers. And me personally, EPDs are probably, you know, more towards the bottom end of how I select cattle for myself. We've had this conversation before about low birth weight and calving knees, and Mm -hmm. I am seeing it more and more. And of course, I sit in a lot of sales where Joe Goggin says, you know, this is a sleep all night type of bull. He can make all the basketball games and... They seem to bring more money on average when they have that thought, when producers have that thought that they can turn this bull out and it's going to be a fault-free calving season, which we know is not true and (laughs) oftentimes has nothing to do with the birth weight. But why do you think we have gotten so off track on chasing those two numbers and getting lighter and lighter calves that are shorter and shorter in gestation? And then what implications long-term do you see in the industry because of that? Yeah, no, that's a great question. So I'm going to preface this with telling you a little bit about myself. So many, many years ago when calving ease became a fad and what a lot of people seem to be paying money for, I chased that myself personally. And uh, I bred, you know, strictly for calving ease, knowing that there were people out there that were going to buy those types of bulls. And I retained those heifers back into my herd. And it didn't take too long before I was like, gosh, dang, I don't even like the looks of these cows anymore. Why would I sell a bull out of these cows? Why would I, if I'm not going to buy it myself, why would I want to sell it to anybody else? So I liquidated my cows and uh, started over because I didn't like the direction that focusing on calving ease had taken me. So there's a lot of hype around it. Now, is there a place for it? Absolutely, right? I want those first calf heifers to be able to have uh, a low stress, good experience calving that first time. And so I believe me personally, there is a place for calving ease and it is strictly with the first time calvers. But what I often see happen is after a year or two of using those bulls on your heifers, people then take those bulls that have matured and are probably a little bit too big to breed heifers, and they put them with their cows. And then they retain those heifers out of those calving ease bulls back into their herd. And before long, they have the same thing that I experienced. They've got these fine boned, smaller uh, cattle that have no bone or, or really no structure to them anymore. Their weaning weights are suffering and struggling. And so it just becomes a cycle that's dangerous and scary, at least to me. I think that, uh, as I said earlier, it needs to be all things in moderation. Too much of an extreme in calving ease is dangerous in shortening that gestation length and then producing uh, those smaller 
more fine boned cattle that just don't grow and just don't produce like we need them to. Yeah. One thing that just keeps bouncing around in my head is the feeders, the feedback we're getting from feeders in general as an industry is the number one cause of death is lung issues that they think came before the feedlot. Right. And so how much does shortening that gestation, those lungs are not developed. I mean, we know that we see it in humans, but what effect is that having that we might not know about yet? I completely concur with what you're saying and the feedback that you're getting from feeders. Uh, anytime we're shortening gestation times, you know, we're not allowing for that unborn calf to fully develop before it's born. You know, even those last, that last week, uh, while that cow is carrying that calf, there's a lot of development that goes into that calf, you know, where he's completely relying upon the mama that's carrying him for everything. And he's just able to develop a good set of lungs so that when he's born, he can, he can go on and do what he's designed and bred to do. So I think there's something to be said about that. And me personally, when it comes to calving ease, you know, when it comes to, to uh, breeding heifers, IAI are heifers straight across the board. That way I don't have to even carry a calving ease bull on the place. We have some moderate birth weight Angus bulls on our place and I'll use them to clean up with. And the way we've bred our cows, I figure that if that heifer can't handle a 75, 80 pound calf out of a cleanup bull, then I probably have no use for her on the place, to be honest with you. And then even when I do AI to low birth weight bulls, I will make sure that we do not keep any of those heifers. Those heifers are all marketed and sold. They're not kept and retained in the herd because I don't want to see those genetics continually perpetuated year over year in our cow base. I think there is room for clarification in the industry. Cavities and birth weight are two very different things. And we combine them all into one. If it's a 50-pound calf, it should come out easy. If it's an 80-pound, we automatically assume that it's going to have trouble. But, I mean, cavities is all about structure. Yep. Which is something that I don't think is taught on how to look at, you know, from the angle from the hooks to the pins and how all of that structure. But why do you think producers are naturally drawn to low birth weight bulls? Is it because the natural age of our producers is what, is 65? Or have we been taught that, you know, calving season shouldn't be challenging and light calves should just be able to get up and suck? I mean, where have we kind of fed into this theory? So I think you, you hit on something that I've been thinking about when it comes to calving ease. And I think some of it is the age of the producer. And I had a conversation just last week with a, a bull buyer of ours. He's getting up there in age. He's, gosh, he's getting ready to turn 70 years old. And uh, I asked him, I said, well, what are you going to be looking for this year? And he says, I want some calving ease bulls. I really do. And I says, you know, we got some calving ease bulls, but what are you, you know, what are you looking to, you know, why are you looking to turn your program in that way? And he said, my shoulders don't work anymore, Brady. He says, I, I can't. I can't pull a calf. I can't assist a cow anymore. I'm getting old. I don't have any help. I just need these cows to calve easy. And I says, well, just because a bull's, you know, noted in our catalog as a heifer bull, that doesn't necessarily mean that, you know, all calves are going to come, you know, small like you're thinking. And I think that's uh, what oftentimes people get confused with in calving ease is, you know, these are going to be lighter birth weight calves. And that's not always the case because I don't think that, you know, calving ease is exactly a 100% heritable trait. Um, there's always going to be the dam side of it that comes into consideration as well. But I think what you're saying there is true, that the age of our producers has something to do with the height of calving ease. I think also feed plays a big role oh, yeah. in 
what your calving season looks like. And I don't think we talk about that conversation. No, we don't. Um, and I, I myself, you know, I'm learning and continuing to learn more about the role of proper nutrition. And if your cattle are fed right and on a good mineral program, and if they're in the right shape, those cows are going to be able to, to handle, you know, any size calf, as long as it's not, you know, completely an extreme case, but they're going to be able to handle calving just fine if those cows have been cared for properly. And I'm working with a nutritionist on a few other projects right now. And I love his background. He's a veterinarian by trade, but his passion is nutrition. And uh, he says, you know, the, the best thing for any cattle program is, is proper nutrition. It's the best form of preventative medicine in cattle is understanding and knowing what the nutritional needs are of your cattle herd. I don't think as a majority of producers, we have figured out that equal balance between great nutrition and structure on our female side and bulls that kind of match that. I think that's an area that the whole industry has to improve. Yep. I would totally concur with you on, on that for sure. There's definitely some improvements that need to be made. And like I've said a couple of times now, you know, for me, it's all things in moderation. When my cows mature, if they can't handle having a 90 pound calf, then I probably don't have a place for her anymore. If she can't handle that, if I've got to help her, if all things are equal, you know, she's had adequate quality nutrition and she's been developed and bred right, but she still can't handle having a calf like that, then she's better off being made into a package of hamburger. One thing that kind of leads me down this path is, okay, so if we have some of these calves that are being born lighter and earlier, how are we not sacrificing future performance? And if we are, which I believe we are, but if we are, what are some areas or some characteristics that we can look for in bulls that might help to recoup that a little bit? having calves that, you know, are born lighter and earlier, but still get us to some of those end goals that we're aiming for. Mm -hmm. So, you know, one thing that frustrates me, I will say this is, <laughs> and I see this oftentimes when you flip through sale catalogs or visit websites or, you know, read different editorials is calving these bulls that have extreme off the charts growth. And I've never personally experienced it. If I've bred, you know, specifically for that trade of calving ease, those calves have never hit the ground and then just experienced explosive growth like they're advertised to. So I think there is some misconceptions out there that these calves that are bred strictly for calving ease are actually going to grow and keep up with the calves that are bred for more maternal strength and characteristics or calves that are bred with more growth genetics in them. So it's a balance and it's a hard balance. For me personally, I like to look at, you know, if I'm selecting a bull to put into my herd, I'm looking at what was his individual birth weight like? What was the environmental situation like where that cow was at prior to calving what was the environment like from birth to weaning for that particular bull and then how did he perform on feed compared to the other bulls in the sale so those are all things that i like to look for um, in selecting bulls is, is moderation and looking at that individual and not just his epds but it's a balancing act that i'm still trying to figure out how do I balance moderate calving ease with calves that are still going to grow and producers that are going to buy these bulls and not come back to me and say, Brady, you know, they calved nice and easy, but my gosh, they were so light when I weaned them. I think it's a dangerous road that we take in setting an expectation that calving ease genetics are going to be explosive growing cattle and that, like you mentioned, that they're not going to go to the feeder and have breathing issues and health issues that are probably related to that shortened gestation period. So 
it's a tough balance. It's a teeter totter that uh, it's something that has to be given attention to and worked on every breeding season. Sometimes I play devil's advocate and I think people get annoyed with it. But to me, if you lost one calf during calving season, and I'm just talking numbers here. I mean, I realize as producers, that's our worst nightmare. But, and you have a hundred calves, it makes a big difference. I mean, if you kind of push your cows a little bit, you can lose one or two in the calving process and still come out better than having your calves weigh 50 pounds less because you chose low birth weight bull. Oh, I agree with that 100%. And me personally, I'm willing to take that bet and take that risk that if I'm breeding for perhaps a little bit more performance out of my cattle from birth to wean or from weaning to yearling, I'm willing to take that risk that I might lose one or two out of a hundred knowing that in the fall, when I wean that set of calves, and when that order buyer shows up and looks at those calves, he's going to be happy with how the calves weigh, that they're going to be well prepared to go to the feeder and that the feeder is going to be able to not have to put as much input into them to get them to where they need to be, whether that's him backgrounding them and then sending them off somewhere to be finished or whether that's him buying them and taking them from there clear to processing. Yeah, there's a lot of things to consider. And one thing I just really encourage producers is every decision you make has another action on the other side. I think we were taught that in science class or something, right? But it's in real life too. (laughs) Right? Scientific formula, but so long ago (laughs) for me, I can't remember. It might be like Newton's law or something like that. I can't remember. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. But every decision you make, when selecting the bulls or even the cows, if you're going to add some cows to it, like every decision you make has a reverse reaction. And so I think we don't think about that. It's hard to think six months in advance to that paycheck you're going to get when on the scale when you're buying a bull. And most of the time, it's a long time. So if you buy a bull right now, you're going to breed your cows this summer, May, June, you're not going to see that paycheck from that bull until the next October. Yeah. Yeah. That is a hard concept. I mean, yeah. You make the investment now, but you don't actually see the return on your investment for a long time. And so for me, that's where it comes into truly understanding the breeders that you're buying your bull from, understanding how the bulls have performed in the past, understanding you know, how those bulls were raised, how they were grown, what they've been bred to do, seeing the cow herd if possible so many things that should be taken into consideration rather than just showing up the day of the sale, watching him make a few runs through the ring and and buying him. Absolutely. I agree. One thing that I'm curious about is what are you seeing in the traits or the situation in some of these really high selling bulls that are being sold this year and last year? Are you noticing a trend or Talk a little bit about what you're observing. Okay. So I follow as many sales as possible from anywhere in the country, right? And I think a lot of it is regionally based for how cattle are bred, the environment in which those cattle are then raised. I think producers are breeding cattle differently in different parts of the country and for a good reason, right? And with that being said, I think it's important and something to take into consideration is try and buy the bulls that are going to work in your environment. If a bull has been born and raised in your environment, chances are everything that he's been bred to do is going to happen. It's more highly likely that it's going to happen um, if he was born and raised in a similar environment as yours. So as far as traits that I'm seeing, Unfortunately, I'm still seeing a lot of calving ease <laughs> out there, which I'm not a big fan of personally. That's not uh, something that is super important to me. But another thing I'm starting to see a little bit more of, and I think for good reason, is feed efficiency. Cattle that are bred and tested to be more efficient 
And there's a reason for that. We're looking, you know, we're, we're facing here in the West, we're facing, you know, a consistent drought. We can't seem to get out of a drought. So there's less feed available for these cattle, whether that's on native forage or whether that's on forage that's been produced and processed and then fed to these cattle. So cattle that are able to do more on less, I think there's a greater emphasis being placed on those types of cattle, particularly in the feeding sector as we look at commodity prices and as we look at cost of gain, different things like that. These cattle have got to truly be able to be efficient with their feed. And so I'm, I'm seeing more and more of that as I follow different sales and as I talk to different uh, seed stock producers, there's more people that are starting to pay attention to cattle that are efficient with their feed. I think that's a huge benefit to the industry. And I also think it's an area where we don't quite know enough about. No, there's still so much being uh, learned as we go, right? And the cool thing is, and I'm hoping to one day be able to invest in some of the technologies, but there's a lot of cool technology out there nowadays that allow you to design a ration and feed it to a set of bulls or feed it to just a particular group of bulls in a pen and see how well they utilize that feed. So there's a lot of advancements being made around this, but like you said, uh, there's more to be learned about it for sure. Do you think that's going to be a trend that we continue to see, or what are some of the trends that you think we're going to see long-term in this industry over the next five and 10 years? Yeah. So I do believe, I think that's one of the top things that we're going to continue to see over the next five to 10 years, particularly if, you know, we continually get hit with, you know, the narrative of climate change and the cattle industry's impact on climate change, which depending on who you talk to, and if you ask me, you know, there's been ruminant animals roaming the earth for as long as the earth's been around. And now all of a sudden, (laughs) we're blaming it on them. Come on. But because of a lot of those uh, environmental pressures that we're beginning to feel, and because we're seeing, you know, cattle inventory numbers shrink because of drought, and other external pressures, I do believe that there is going to be a greater emphasis placed on cattle that are more efficient with their feed. And that goes back to the cow-calf producer, right? Beginning with them, how well do those mama cows do with their feed? Can we feed them in different types of forages at any given time of the year? And are they going to be able to utilize that forage to raise and produce a good calf that's going to wean well and make them profitable? And then are those calves that are weaned and sent to the feeder, are they going to be able to do more on less? Like I mentioned, commodity prices are sky high. Uh, We're seeing fertilizer prices double, maybe even triple in some areas. So what's that going to do to the cost of feed, you know, in the coming years? We don't know. And so anytime we can develop cattle that are more efficient with the inputs that they are given, I think we're going to be further ahead. And I believe, you know, I've talked to a a couple small feeders. These are not large scale feeders, just a few small feeders that I'm familiar with and connected with, but that's important to them. They've got to be able to uh, get the most out of these cattle with as little as possible if they're going to be profitable. Absolutely. One thing, a trend I'm noticing, and I don't know how it's going to play out, is I'm seeing a lot of smaller producers enter the market. Yeah. Where it's like, you know, they sell 20 bulls or 30 bulls. And I'm actually really stoked for that because I think if you want to raise food and fiber, we want you in the industry. It doesn't matter what you look like, what your ideas are, if you want to help join this cause, and that really makes me excited that we're seeing the draw for people with unique ideas and breeding situations and all of that join in the market. And I think we're going to see even more of that in the future. I love seeing that as well. 
And I appreciate people that want to get in and be involved. One thing I'm seeing too, now that you say that, that you're seeing more of a trend in, in smaller producers wanting to get in and get involved, whether that's whether they have 10, 15, 20 head of cows, I'm seeing a huge trend in direct to consumer beef programs. Uh, you're seeing these pop up more and more. In fact, I've talked to some people just this week who have been buying bulls from us and asking them a little bit about their program and, hey, what are you going to be looking for this year? And they said, you know, we are really looking to moderate the frame size of our cattle because we have been retaining 10, 15 head of steers every year and feeding them out and selling the beef direct to consumer. And I said, so, okay, so tell me about moderating your, you know, the frame size on your cows. Why? And they said, because it's costing us too much to feed these darn steers to get them ready to be processed. So we want to moderate that a bit. So I'm seeing a trend more and more with producers that are retaining some of their own calves, feeding them out, and then marketing the beef in their local communities direct to consumer. And to be honest with you, that excites me as well. I love the idea of a more local food supply. Me too. I think with the trucking situation that we've seen now for what, nine months or even a year with COVID, I think having a more local food supply is fantastic. And the other thing too is I think that we're all aiming for the same goal. We want people to have beef on their plate and the more options they have to buy it, the better. Yes. I definitely, definitely agree with that. And you just mentioned something, you know, with the situation, particularly in Canada with the truckers and potentially seeing some of that here in the States, we don't know what's going to happen there, but it's not uncommon for me to walk in, you know, the little small town grocery store here in rural Utah and see the meat case be almost empty some days, depending on when you, you know, enter the supermarket. And so I, I love the uh, enthusiasm and the entrepreneurship that some of these producers are developing in doing some direct consumer programs. And for most of them, if they can figure out the feed component of their program, they're actually more profitable than they have been otherwise. So that excites me to see people doing that. We went up to Brady's to film their bulls for their sale. And before that, we were in Arizona. And Grayson and I went into Walmart. And the meat shelves were empty. And it was just this realization that our supply chain is broken and we need some more options. I had never seen the whole entire meat case, every type of meat, off the shelves. And they were not restocking. I mean, it was just empty. And so I think any avenue and this kind of agritourism aspect as well. I think all of those are great assets to the industry. Absolutely. And and what you just said, I see it more so. I try and support local and shop local. Um, but occasionally if I'm, you know, in the city and I need to stop somewhere to pick something up at one of the big box retailers, I, I always make it a point just to walk by the meat case just for fun to see what prices are. And to see if there's even a selection. And what you just said, I see really almost every time I walk into an urban retail location where those meat cases are stripped clean, almost empty, and I, you don't see them being restocked. Absolutely. Okay, last question that I have for you. Yes. Is what advice do you have for a rancher who is either buying bulls this year or feels a nudge to tweak their program a little bit. What is some words of wisdom you have? My first words of wisdom is come to the Intermountain Genetic Alliance. So <laughs> we will have a bull for you, but no, all jokes aside, I think the advice that I would give a rancher right now, and I think for so many years, we've just kind of you know, did things the way that we've always done them. But my advice to them would be think outside the box, take a look at your cow herd, take a look at the marketing opportunities that you have with your calves. What's going to make you more profitable? Is it going to be selling by the pound at weaning time? Is it going to be finding a marketing opportunity 
where you can retain ownership and follow those calves clear through. It's going to make you more profitable. And then from there, whatever that opportunity is that you determine is going to make you more profitable because being profitable in ranching these days is tough. It's not easy. And so as we uh, recognize and determine the best way to be profitable, then we need to look at, okay, what type of cattle are going to get me there? And where can I get my hands on these type of cattle? Where can I get my hands on these genetics to implement into my cow herd so that I can accomplish the task and the goal to achieve uh, profitability on my ranch? So I mentioned it earlier, but I do believe there's a big future with feed efficient genetics. I believe that over the next decade, we're probably going to see more and more emphasis placed on that. So that's something to take a look at. But when it comes to buying bulls, um, we've touched on a few of these things already, but my advice would be go see the bulls ahead of time. Don't just show up on the, the day of the sale and expect that you're going to have enough time fighting the crowds of people that are going to be looking at the bulls as well to make a good conscious decision on a bull that, you know, that represents the future of your program in many ways. So go out and get to know your producer, get to know these, these seed stock guys, have them take you on a tour and show you the cow herd. Um, when I go and buy bulls, um, I'll always ask, can we go take a look at the cows? I want to see what those cows look like. I want to know how those bulls were developed. We talked about that a little bit as well. I think knowing how those bulls were fed and developed is crucial. Uh, we try and develop ours on a forage ration with hardly any corn, hardly any grain involved. Uh, we want these bulls to be in good shape, but we don't want to overdo it. Um, so I think understanding that is crucial as well. So those are some things that I would advise people to take into consideration when making bull selections. The one thing that you haven't said, probably because you're too humble, is you need to find a producer that you really, really, really trust who you buy your bulls from because they're on your team. Yep. And finding someone like you, Brady, where you can work with them throughout the year, don't just have the relationship with your seed stock producer where they send you a catalog, you come to the sale, and you only call if something went wrong. Like, let's end that stigma. This person is on your team and the more intimate that they know your program, the more they can help. And if you find the right person, they might at some point say, hey, I think you should try to breed a Hereford bull. I raise Angus, but I think for your goals, let's put a Hereford bull in this year. Find someone who's going to work alongside you. And that's something we don't see right now between the commercial cattlemen and the seed stock producer to the level that I hope we see in the future. I totally agree with that. And I'm glad you bring that up. I appreciate the compliment, but that's something that I try to, to really do. And it's something, it's a point of emphasis that our cell and, and my partners in our cell are really trying to consciously be more aware of. In fact, we're setting up a couple little day-long road trips where we're going to go out prior to the cell to buyers and prospective buyers alike and uh, shake hands and talk with these people, find out how their calving season's going, find out what some of the things are that are important to them. It accomplishes a couple of things for us. It helps us understand if we're going down the right path as seed stock producers for them, but it also builds and deepens that relationship with them to where they are able to trust us. If we say, hey, we're seeing some good things with you know some Hereford bulls or these Sim Angus bulls, have you thought of trying something like this? It may not be what I personally produce as a breeder, but we have it available at our cell. The other thing that I feel is important too, and you touched on this and I'm glad you brought it up, is I don't view any of the people that buy bulls from us as a customer. I view that as a partnership. We're partners with them in helping them reach whatever their goals may be for breeding their cattle. And so it's important for us to understand what those goals are so that we can provide solutions 
And one thing we haven't completely figured out, but that we're close on and hoping to get nailed down a little bit more closely, and you've been a great help to us in doing this, is a marketing program. We want to be able to have our bull buyers come back and say, hey, you know, our calves are predominantly sired by Intermountain Genetic sires. Can you help us market these calves and and be more profitable? So we're looking into a number of things uh, where we can partner with people to be able to help them maximize the profit potential of their calves each year, regardless of how they sell them. And I think that's important to develop those relationships with your bull supplier. And then on the uh, bull producer side, it's important to develop those relationships with uh, the people that are buying from you. I agree. It's certainly a partnership. And I think that's something that you do a great job bringing to the table. But I also hope that's an industry shift that we see is a more connected relationship. Because if your calves don't do well because of the bull selection you pick, then your seed stock producer is not going to do well. So you're both kind of on the same train. So working together and making sure that it's an actual partnership, I think has a lot of benefits for both sides. Absolutely. And and I think it's important too, for people listening that are commercial cattle producers, I think it's important that you give the bull producer honest feedback. He can't evolve as a seed stock producer if he's not getting honest feedback. So don't be afraid to uh, hurt his feelings a little bit or tell him like it is. I love it. And I've had people tell me how it is before. And I appreciate constructive criticism, if you want to call it that. But I love good, honest feedback from people, whether it's what I want to hear or whether it's what I don't want to hear, because that's the only way that I can grow. And that's the only way that the other producers in our cell can grow is if we understand the end product. Absolutely. Well, Brady, always great to have some of these deep conversations with you. Is there anything else you'd like to share with our audience today? You know, uh, I appreciate the opportunity to visit with you as always. It's always fun to talk about the cattle industry and how we can uh, work together to make improvements. So thanks for having me on. Absolutely. Thank you, Brady. Are you interested in joining a community of progressive cattlemen? Cattlemen U doors are opening this May from the 2nd through 31st. We're excited to welcome people like you into our community dedicated to learning and reaching our goals. Cattlemen U is for any producer. Whether you're just starting out or want to refresh your skills, you can join the waitlist today at calumnyulive.com backslash join. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Cattlemen U podcast. And remember, the grass is greener where you water it.